Hey, everybody, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal's Base Camp Podcast. I am your host, Eric Wilber. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Speechin. Mike, how are you? Eric, I am doing outstanding. It is getting closer and closer to what we do best, and that is ski. Yes, I mean, foliage is in full swing right now, and uh, it's very pretty out there, right? It's nice. Uh, but foliage as a skier is tough because you want to get to the good stuff. This time of year, though, it, it, it's you're struggling for something tangible to tell you that skiing is coming. Uh, it used to be when August, what was the first sign of skiing? As well as I do what it was. Oh, Eric, it was always, I was waiting for Powder Magazine to arrive. I was exactly. waiting for Ski Magazine to yep. arrive. And you remember skiing, of course. Of course. And, and snow country. I mean, yeah. all of them. All of those periodicals that would land in your in your mailbox in August, and they were thick, like this thick, because of all the ads that people were putting in them back then. You had the gear guide in August. You always trusted on that coming out. That was the first sign that summer was over, right? And that you were going to be going full bore into ski season. And now skiing magazine, God rest its soul, is, is gone. Snow country is long gone. Ski magazine as we knew it is nothing like it used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. If you want to have some fun and, and, and go back in time, do a Google search of ski magazines on uh, Google Books, and they have full issues. Uh, I did a lot of this research in my when I wrote the book on, on Dan. Just amazing to go back and to read full issues of skiing magazine from way back in the 70s and the 80s and 90s. Same thing if you go to New England Ski Museum up in North Conway. Entire library of skiing and skiing magazines in the back that you're free to, to, to look over. Highly recommend it if you're into a snapshot into skiing history. But back to our discussion, at this time of year is when that would begin. Equipment tests. And then what was next? Next would be the resort. The resort. The resort. Exactly. Is Vail going to be number one again, right? Is Tremblant going to be number one in the east again? It was always Tremblant, right? Well, well I, I don't know. Holiday Valley. Holiday in, Valley. In New yes, York, Western right. New York kept climbing up. <laughs> but those magazines were those first two copies of the year were tabletop. They, they, they stayed on the coffee table. Yep. So if you went into any ski lodge, you saw them. If you went into, if you rented a house, they were on the coffee table and you just kept leafing through them going, my God, I'm, I'm getting stoked. Right. But they were keepers. And they were, I think this term is said a lot to at that time and age, especially in skiing, because everyone wanted to share the environment is that this was viral before there was viral in a way that we shared these magazines because they were on every single coffee table in every single ski chalet and every single ski house across the Northeast, across America, right? The same way that every single ski lodge or every single ski house you went to had a Warren Miller movie or it had a, a Greg Stump film, or it had some sort of, of film that you were attracted to and you wound up sharing with others, whether that was word of mouth or whether you made a copy of <clears throat> of the VHS tape. I know there's some fines the FBI had in line for that, so I don't want to be too explicit on it. But you know what I mean? Like you would share that stuff all the time with fellow skiers because they were such great products and they were such a niche in our great passion that you wanted to spread the word. Oh, 100%. We 
we'd plug in the latest VHS while I'm going back or DVD and watch, watch these movies that got us stoked. I mean, it's, it's a sad day right now, as we know, Warren Miller uh, Productions is changing. Mm-hmm. It looks like at this point, there's not another movie coming, um, which, is, which is sad because we all, all of us, really use that moment in the fall to get stoked on what was ahead right. and make our plans. You're a child of the 80s to, to some degree, right? You remember 80s sitcoms, and every time an 80s sitcom got tired or was running out of ideas, what'd they do? A clip show, right? Hey, here's some highlights of our past. That's what Warren Miller Productions, I believe, is doing, a clip show, um, like a, a best of for, and they're trying to pass that off. And it's just, it is kind of sad when you think about the, the history of that, um, that company and that man and what that meant for skiing, particularly at this time of year when ski films are, are abound and everyone's trying to have the next great film of skiing. Is there a next great film of skiing? I don't know. This is not going to be like the next great American novel, but the ski film landscape is just so it's fun. It's fun at this time of year, right? And there's, we're starting to get the new ones that are coming out. Teton Gravity has a snowboard only film coming up. It's their first ever. Like we said, there's no Warren Miller to speak of. So it's going to be an interesting landscape. And this is going to be a good time for us to kind of dive into that, that landscape, right? To, to look at the Hollywood side, well, the Hollywood and the documentary side of capturing skiing and uh, the history of skiing or, or whether it's from a fantasy of, of of Hollywood itself. We're going to spend the next few shows here on the on the Basecamp podcast paying attention to what we all want to at this time of year. The skiing film, the skiing sort of environment and the excitement that that breeds. 100%. Well, folks, we're doing something different for the next couple podcasts. We're, we've put together a three-part series here with some of the most influential films in the marketplace ever. We had the downhill racer, remember Robert Redford, right? We had Robert Redford on. Right? Nah, well, we're not having Robert Redford. Sorry, (laughs) can't happen. But we do have some great guests coming up over the next three episodes. And every single part of what we are going to do here when we're looking at these ski movies and how they influenced the next generation of filmmakers beyond them, but every single one of them has a New England connection, which is really cool. Absolutely. So today we are going to go behind the curtain of one of my favorite movies, never mind ski movies, movies of all time. And that would be Hot Dog, the movie, a, uh, a mid 80s, more early 80s, madcap romp through the ski world. And it, it, it gave us such legendary figures and, and characters as Harkin Banks and Banana Pants and old angry German skiers who talk like this, right? It, 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 it was the ski movie that defined ski movies. It's, it's Porky's on snow, as one reviewer gave it. Meatballs on snow. Any one of those wacky 80s comedies, you put it on skis and you had hot dog. What really defined hot dog, what makes it stand out is the music. I, I still hum some of, the, some of the bars and some of the, the oh, music yeah. from hot dog. And the skiing, right? This wasn't, let's hire some no names that don't know how to ski and put them on a mountain and throw them down it. 
this was, they did their research. They hired the best of the best actual skiers that could ski and it showed because the skiing in the movie is gnarly. We're going to talk to one of those skiers, Lynn Wyland from Vermont was banana pants in the movie. And we're going to have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Marvin, who just happened to write and produce Hot Dog the Movie. Unbelievable. Hang on, folks. This is going to be a fun ride over these next three episodes. It's going to kick off with Hot Dog, and it's going to continue to get better after that. So looking forward to it. All right. And we are on our way right after this. They're fast. They're fun-loving. They're fearless. They're nuts. They're the finest hot-dogging, freestyle skiers in the world. This is the motion picture comedy that's proud to go downhill fast. The movie that defies the forces of gravity. Sanity. Good taste. Hot Dog, the movie. Welcome back into the Basecamp Podcast. I am excited to introduce our next guests. We've got on the old uh, telephone line here, we've got Mike Marvin, who is the man behind Hot Dog, the movie. He's the writer, producer, and editor. Uh, we've also got Lynn, Lynn Wyland, uh, who you may better know as Banana Pants Michelle in the movie, uh, in her iconic pink jacket and bright yellow pants. Uh, look, we're going to talk hot dog for the next 25, 30 minutes or whatever. I can't be more excited. Let me just introduce Mike Marvin, grew up ski racing in Tahoe City, made several small budget ski films, leading him in 1982. He had just sold a Kenny Rogers vehicle called Six Pack. Uh, when he had a fateful meeting with his mentor, Edward L. Fe- Edward S. Feldman, a veteran Hollywood producer. Those were the very beginnings of what we know now as Hot Dog the Movie. Lynn Wyland grew up skiing in Vermont at Killington. By the time she was a senior in high school, she was the top amateur mogul skier in the country and the second best in aerials. She joined the U.S. ski team for a year and starred in Warren Miller and Greg Stump movies. More on that in a little bit. Remembered most for her Role in the ski movie Hot Dog, Whelan said she was making $1,000 a week as a 19-year-old. That's exciting. It's exciting to have you both on the program, so welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here, guys. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, Fantastic. Well, Hot Dog, we're in a three-part series here, and Hot Dog really started the excitement in the ski movie world. Nothing was like it. Mike, how did the idea for Hot Dog come about? Being a Boston guy, I heard Bernie Weichel's 1974 freestyle tour was a basis for it. Tell us about it. It, it, it was. What happened was it, it, nobody's ever asked me about the genesis of Hot Dog. And what happened was it was really simple. I had been making ski movies from 72 on through 76. And, and I, I had done three feature-length movies, 90-minute ski movies, and then one one-hour movie. And I was having dinner with Ed Feldman, and we were at Jake's in Tahoe City having this dinner. And I and I was telling Ed of my adventures making these ski movies, everything that had happened to me in these making these ski movies, and and I didn't and I thought I was just sort of 
waxing philosophically about it. And in the end, it's, that's the most fascinating thing I've heard in years. I was with it. Another guy was with us that night, a guy named Mort Engelberg. And you can IMDB him. We were all there. And Ed said, you might have a movie there if you if you take yourself out of your ski filmmaking mode and put yourself in a mode of an actual competitor. And that's what I did. And a guy from New York ponied up $35,000 to write the screenplay. At that time, I was making a fortune writing movies. And so that was a step down for me for $35,000. And I wrote it. And I wrote it over several weeks. And it all took, the original script all took place in Aspen, Colorado. And the kids, Harkin Banks' quest was to meet with the Ski in the World Freestyle Skiing Championships and meet John Denver. That was his quest. And in that, he meets Hunter Thompson and a few others. And the, what was the name of the guy, the guru in Oregon, that guy? Remember that, that crazy guru dude? And what happened is we tried to get into Aspen to film the movie and and said no. So I called Eric Dixon at Squaw Valley and said, hey, Eric, and I'd grown up in Tahoe, so I knew everybody. I said, how do you feel about that? And it took some talking, but that's how it ended up in Squaw. And then what I had to do then is I had to revise the script to accommodate Squaw. No John Denver, no Hunter Thompson, no gurus, and the movie that I that we did, you've seen. Yes, one hundred percent. And that's how, and that's how Hot Dog started. Harkin <laughs> Banks was a John Stewart creation. That name was John Stewart from from an album. I think the album was Sunstorm. John Stewart was my friend, and we did two songs from his album, but only one made the final cut, Dreamers on the Rise. And I think that was the one. And and that was recorded by Hark- the Harkin voice. It was a guy named Chuck McDermott in Boston. And there's a lot of little details like that that are kind of interesting when you really get, get into it, <laughs> besides all the madness that actually happened while we were making the movie, which was Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh my goodness. You got you guys you made skiing super super cool. I mean, that's what you did. I mean, when you yeah. watch that movie, you're just like, "Oh my god, I want that lifestyle." It turned into a cult movie. There's no question about it. I'm fascinated by the fact that that guys go to Hollywood and, and very very few cult movies come out, and I came out with two of them. So, and Hot Dog being one of them. And so I've always, I've always kind of laughed at it, how it was a cultural thing. People name their children. There are a couple of kids named Harkin out there. So well, can I tell you? That, that is so awesome. Hey, Lynn, I cannot tell you how many skiers that I speak with that have stated that they watch Hot Dog every year. I mean, it's just amazing. Why do you think it has this place in the ski movie world? I think, as you said in the beginning, when hot dog came out, there was nothing like it. And that's what it was when something new and different and fun and comes out and something people can relate to in some sort of a way. I, I work in a ski shop now here in Boise as a buyer and 
people walk into the store and we start chatting and and it comes up hot dogs and movie comes up and every season I hear like you do from so many people that we all get together and watch it it's our kickoff to the whole season we have a ski cabin in Tahoe or Vermont or Colorado and it's what we all do the first thing we all do before the season even starts so yeah let's get together and watch hot dog and it has become an iconic cult following and it's just so much fun to have been a part of it even just my little part mike i, I was doing my research too for this podcast and realized you had a, a role in six pack for the kenny rogers vehicle and i i, I haven't right. seen six pack in probably 40 years but that was a vhs tape that me and my sister just rolled over and over again and again it was it was a favorite movie in the wilbur house so thank you wow. for that but you wow. know i i have to ask you you said that sort of how Hot Dog emerged from John Denver onto into Squaw, but how did you go from John Denver to Shannon Tweed? Like, how, how did that sort of metamorphosis go on? Well, yeah, that's a good question. We, 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 when we were in Squaw, Ed Feldman, he would, and he was, Ed Feldman was old school producer. He worked with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and all those guys. I mean, his next movie he did was entitled called home. I read the script. There were 68 pages of it, uh, the called home. It ended up being witness. Okay. That was his next movie. His very next movie. He got nominated for an Academy award for best picture. I've always teased him. God rest his soul. I teased him and I'd say, Hey, hot dog. The movie is the movie that cost you the Oscar. <laughs> and his Hollywood was very unforgiving about hot dogs. Shannon Tweed, Ed would say things like, in, in, in his, only in his New York accent, I, I want a I horny movie. I want a horny movie. <laughs> That's what he called Hot Dog, a horny movie. And we reached out to a number of different actresses, and I can't remember who reached out to Hefner, but one of us did and offered it to Shannon and she said yes. And two days later she was in Claw Valley and every single day after that, Hugh Hefner was going insane with jealousy, trying to figure out which one of us was sleeping with her. <laughs> and of course in the end, not, none of us were, but, but Hefner thought we, because if it was reversed, that's what it would have been the scene with him. And, and then, and that's how she got on. We made her an offer and she said, yes. And the rest was, I could tell you stories. <laughs> I, I'm sure you can. That was, that was a pretty free for all time in skiing. Yes, it was. So Lynn, you're nice. It was I'm different. Sorry. It was a different, it was a different time. The nudity and hot dog got criticized and they, they, they called it a sexploitation movie. And what they forgot is that the movie ended up with one of the great action sequences without CGI of all sports movies. I mean, Hot Dog still ranked, even today, as one of the top sports movies ever produced, ever, Ag simply because yeah. of Chinese downhill. Agreed. You know, and, and, and I think that's why it's so timeless. That's why Hot Dog works, you know. It's uh, yeah. it can be described as Porky's on skis, but you know how many times is Porky's watched these days? I don't think a lot. Right. Whereas hot dog nobody is remembers. Yeah, nobody remembers Porky's really. Exactly yeah, because the, the skiing and the music and, and everything is so 
relatable. It just shifts you right back to that time in the 80s. Like, like I watched Hot Dog last week preparing for this. It, I was right back there it, it, the first time I watched it. So it always has that lasting impression. And the dynamics of getting the hot, getting that, I still have the, I storyboarded the entire Chinese downhill Spielberg style. I storyboard every shot on that. And the politics of getting the Chinese downhill produced, you, you would not believe how, the problems that were involved in that. You would think that, that it would have been easy to do. It looks fun. And, and it goes to show you that sometimes the most nightmarish experiences of making movies sometimes turn out to be the best. How many takes did that take? We were on we were on the Chinese downhill for almost all winter. We shot it in pieces because the winter of '83 was brutal as far as weather goes. Sometimes we'd be sitting at the top up there at Gold Coast. Sometimes we'd be we'd be there for six hours waiting for a sucker window, huh. and and we'd get it and we'd go out, and then it would start snowing again. It was just brutal. The majority of the movie got shot. In the last two and a half weeks, the majority of the Chinese downhill got filmed in the last two weeks. Remember, it was all filmed on, it was all shot on film and 35 millimeter cameras. It's not like today where you can strap on a GoPro and, and go flipping through the air. You can't do that with a Air 3 that weighs 30, 40 pounds. And we, we were, it was a different kind of filmmaking sensibility in those days. It was really hard work. You can't just go out and ski around with a GoPro and get fascinating footage. In those days, every every shot had to be planned out because it was a theat- We knew it was going to be a theatrical release, so we had there were there were typical movie problems with it, and but we got it done. You got it done in a big way. So, yeah. Lynn, you're 19 at the time, I guess. Um, you gave up college, and your father ended up buying you a one way ticket to California. Could you? <laughs> Describe growing up in Vermont. What was your relationship like with Robbie Huntoon? And how did you convince your dad just to buy you a ticket? And and how could I tell my daughter not to do the same? You can't now. Um, (laughs) Or she'll she'll buy a a one-way flight or something. Yeah. We moved to Vermont from, I think it was New York and Jersey. We started going up every weekend in about... 1968 and we would go up and ski every weekend and my two older brothers said to my parents well we want to join this this hot dog it wasn't even freestyle yet and so they said we want to join this hot dog it was called the master's program back then and my parents said well fine but if you two are going to do it we're sending your sister with you for like if we're getting rid of the two of you we're getting rid of her too for the day so we were doing that every weekend, and eventually my parents thought, this is crazy, traveling back and forth. Why don't we just move to Vermont? And we did in 1970. And I skied on the freestyle team as a competitive aerial moguls and ballet skier until I graduated high school in 1981. And back then, after high school, you go to college. That's what my two older brothers did. I just assumed that's what was expected of me when really all I wanted to do was go out west and ski. And Robbie Huntoon was a, an, a competitor on the freestyle team when I first joined when I was seven years old. I've known him since I was seven. And so he was a competitor, and then he was one of our coaches as he got out of competing. 
And then in 83, when I ran into him, it was actually October of 82. And I was in my first semester of my sophomore year in college, and I just didn't want to be there. It wasn't working for me. And I ran into Robbie skiing at Killington in October because of snowmaking. And we were skiing the bump line on Upper Cascade and loading on the mid-station on that old K-1 chair that's not there anymore. And Robbie said, Gosselin, you're, you're skiing great. What are you doing these days? And I said, I'm going to college. I don't want to. I want to move out west and ski. And Robbie was running the freestyle program at Squaw Valley. And he said, I'll give you a job coaching. We've got a house with my roommates. We have a guest room. You can stay with us, everything on the up and up. And I went home from skiing that day. And I said to my dad, I have an offer to move out west to Squaw Valley. And I have a job coaching. I've got a place to stay, it looks like. I mean, until I find a place. I was 19. And my dad said, that's the best idea I've ever heard because he knew college wasn't really doing it for me and I was unsatisfied and unfulfilled and I really just wanted to go out west and keep skiing. So he, he said, I'll buy a one-way ticket. It was $99 from New York to San Francisco. And he said, if you want to come home, I'll buy you a ticket home. And I never had to. I take it back with all that in place. I would let my daughter go. I would encourage her to go. So yeah. good for you. boy, boy, would <laughs> I know, love those $99 tickets back. Luggage didn't even have wheels on it. So like I've got all these duffel bags. I've got a big multi five pair of skis rolled up and, and I'm taking a cab from the San Francisco airport to the Greyhound station. I'm a 19 year old from Vermont. Like I don't know any stigmas. Like, you know what I mean? And it's funny, the flight was delayed. I had to get a later bus up to Truckee. By the time we pulled into Truckee, it was well past midnight. No cell phone. Couldn't let Robbie know I was coming in late. He was meeting me at the bus to pick me up. And I we pull into Truckee. It's just dumping snow. I Nothing was open. And I just kind of stood there. The bus let me out and took all my stuff out and drove away. And I stood there like, okay. And not long after, I see the little two lights on Robbie's Volkswagen bug coming through the snow. And so, yeah, it all worked out okay. I, I would say it worked out better than okay. Yeah. Um, it By all and, means. And I was just, I coached. I found a place to live. Talking about being a ski bum in the 80s, a couple hundred bucks a month for a nice room in a little cabin on the river, the Truckee River. I mean, we had it made back then. And I was just working in a little ski shop on the mountain, and I was doing several different things to try to make enough money to survive, which didn't take a lot back then, but you didn't make a lot either. And this hot dog thing, like I was I was aware of it, but I didn't really understand what was going on. And then Robbie, my understanding is Robbie went to Mike and other powers that be at Hot Dog and said, hey, I want to get Lynn on film before you make a final decision with this other gal you brought in for that one little part. And we went out and filmed that one, the open, some of the opening credits that day. And they're like, yep, yep, let's get her in that role. And then the other gal, I think, ended up doing something in a, at a party scene, I don't know, to fulfill her obligations or something, her contract. Well, you you went on the hill and showed them what Eastern skiers are all about is what happened. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry, Mike. I've always thought Eastern skiers were. I've always thought Eastern skiers were more more powerful skiers in the sense that Eastern skiers. I don't know how it is today, but Eastern skiers had to be able to set an edge, and Western skiers like like myself and others. We always had nice conditions. We never had the bad icy conditions that existed in the East. So Eastern skiers were always just a few few clicks better than Western skiers were. That's just a fact. I think that's still a fact. I hear that from a lot of people still. Oh, you grew up in the East. Yeah. Although we just yeah. asked Doug Lewis this last week, and he said that the it's balancing out a little bit, and I can't remember exactly what the reasons well, yeah, were. Yeah, it's balancing out because of he he. We we're talking about ski academies and stuff, and it's about grit. And I think the Western ski academies definitely have become more elevated, especially Vale, in many ways. But it's all perception and perspective, I guess. But I mean, again, yep. the reason why we, we were talking about it earlier is that the reason why this film holds up is because the skiing in it is top notch. Mike, how did you go about recruiting skiers for the film? Who did you already know you wanted to be in it? And who did you have to be introduced to, a.k.a. Lynn? Okay, so that's an easy one. When I got to Squaw Valley, it turned out that the stunt coordinator named Max Clevin lived there. And... By 83, I was no longer wired into the ski world in the same sense that I was, say, from 1963 on to 1972 or 73. I had been out of the ski world since we had shot in Europe in 76. I did the Subaru campaign, and I shot that in, I think it was Stratton Mountain, Vermont, which was the last serious ski piece I did. When I got to Squaw Valley... I didn't know the, up all the hot skiers. Max Clevin, who was the stunt coordinator on the movie, he was wired in. And what they did, if I remember correctly, what they did is they put it out there on bulletin boards that they were looking for skiers. And I remember, I vaguely remember the auditions of the local, some of the local skiers and I remember one in particular, this kid was really, really a good skier. And for doing a movie, you don't have to have, I mean, the casual observer of a, of a ski movie would never know. For example, Lin, you couldn't tell Lindsay Vaughn from the next female racer that who's a second and a half behind her or a tenth of a second behind her. You wouldn't know that she was, you know, she wasn't that good. But on film, the, the, they all look pretty much the same. So I, uh, at the end of the day, we picked skiers based on that. I don't remember exactly how Robbie came to me um, the, uh, and the other skiers. I don't really remember the, um, Lynn, how she got aboard. But I do remember we had auditions. And that's how a lot of the Chinese downhill guys were chosen. And as the movie progressed, of course, I got to know them. Our, our, our main, one of our main skiers, another God rest your soul, rest your soul was Blaine Parrish. So I really got uh, to know him. He was, he was really good. And it's, we, it, it, it was like an, it was like an, like a casting session, like an audition for skiers. And, and I saw them and, uh, 
I, along with Max, and made decisions who we thought could do it, who would double up and so on and so forth. That's how it happened. That is so cool. I mean, when when this movie came out, all of us were in awe just because we had never seen anything like it. Mike, back in 2014, you told Powder Magazine, compared to today, the freestyling events were got gigantic. He said, thousands of people showed up and the whole idea was to party. I want to hear from both of you. How much does skiing miss this no holds barred era of skiing? Well, I'll, let me uh, let me go. Do you want me to go on this, Lynn? I'll go first. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. First time I ever, I was filming a ski movie I was making called Earth Rider in um, Aspen, Colorado. And it was actually, you know, that was in uh, January, February of 72. There was, it was actually the second year that um, Aspen held a hot dog contest. And we held it on Ajax on, in the winter of 72. And the object of the thing, of the, of the whole thing, whole event was you go to, you tear ass down the mountain. And if you fall, you're judged on your recovery. And if you take a, if you're pushing it to the limits, and you auger or take a digger or crash, then, and you recover and you keep skiing, you could win. And watching that event, I'll never forget it. There were, oh, I would say 6,000 people watching, 7,000 people watching. It was staggering. And I went, holy cow, there, this is, this is a phenomenon. And then the next year, when we were in, or two years later, when we were in Park City, that's where I met Bernie Weichel. That the Conta Cup, I mean, there were thousands of people watching that. Today, you get 20 or 30 people, 40 maybe. Things have changed. And there's a reason for it. And I'm convinced I know the reason. <laughs> Fire away. <laughs> we want to hear it. They freestyle skiing lost its heart. It became autonoma. It became it became robotic. Yep, became in, judged. In, yeah, in 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 skating, they made you do compulsories before you did your big events. Even those are not done anymore. In skiing, the aerialists today do the Chinese aerialists know how to ski? They know how to go down that ramp on a pair of skis and flip through the air, but could they handle two feet of powder or could they hit, could they handle Sierra cement? Could they do any of those things? My guess is no. And so what happens is they build these folks, fake moguls, right? They build these fake moguls that look like Volkswagens and they tell they point down hill, hill and they see how many times, see how fast their knees can handle 600 bumps and there at the bottom, there's no passion in it. There's no heart in it. There's no, as Ed Feldman would say, where's the pizzazz? And what, in my opinion, just my humble opinion, they need to go back to the old format and do it all on the artistry of the thing. It all needs to be about the art. They go down there and have some guy hit that jump and give it everything he fucking has. And when he lands, or if he crashes and he survives and he does it again, he might win. 
that's how I feel about it. I think they've lost their passion. They've turned it. They've turned these guys into ro- robots. I mean, anybody. If you really think about it, there's no true skill in that. It's all in the knees. If you go down there hard and fast, it's the guy who's got the best knees and can make those knees work. I mean, there's no taking them, figuring out the line or any of that stuff. Just right. point it straight, straight down. Or am I wrong? No, no you're no, absolutely 100% you're, you're, right. You're right on. I missed, missed the days. What about you, Lynn? You're at Bogus Basin. What, what I do you between these two types of skiing. When you say the movie Hot Dog was based on the freestyle tour in 1974, I was 11 in 1974, and I was like a junior girl three I remember standing at the top of the mobile course with my coach and he would make a snowball and, and throw it and say, catch your top air off of that. No, the one right next to that one. We had no pre-made jumps in the mobile courses and you had to do all three events to qualify for the overall. The overall was everything when I was doing freestyle skiing. And it, it has changed a lot. I do agree. And, and the, the life has changed a lot, too, if you look at it that way. Things are not the way they were in the, in the mid-70s. But where were we going with this? Remind me? Well, the no-holds-bar era of fun, of skiing, okay. of lifestyle. So that, yeah, so I was just a, a, a preteen and a teenager, and I used to look through the ski magazines and watch Wide World of Sports and watch all the people the Genya Fullers and the John Eves and the Scott Brooks Banks, and they're just all about 10 years older than I was. So when I moved out, to t- you know, and this is all before social media and all that stuff. And so when I moved out to Squaw Valley in 83, January of 83, I was only 19. So I was still like not in that big party atmosphere that was, freestyle skiing in the 70s my experience was a little bit different but I never really went like on the pro tour or the pro well I did a couple pro mobile tour contests but then I got hurt so mine has been just a little bit different but I definitely watched all the shows and the magazines and and they were all my heroes and now with the whole ski hall of fame happening and all those people that I used to watch and, and admire so much. Now they're my friends because I go to these events and kind of living vicariously through all of that. That's great. Um, Mike, I read a story recently yeah. where you said the original edit was almost three hours and that the party <laughs> sequence alone was 45 minutes long. Um, where can we see oh, wow. this masterpiece first of all? And uh, how did that get cut down to what we know today? It's an easy story. Um, yeah, Ed and I left the the hired director alone, and we we for four or five weeks I forget the about six weeks he cut the picture, and we walked in, and there were no temporary tracks, what they call temp tracks. He had a little boombox in the screening room, and yeah, this. The, the movie was three hours long, and here's what was interesting about it. There was such animosity on filming the movie. The director hated the whole concept of what we were doing. He hated it. Um, and he made it clear to me that he hated it. And right before we started the movie, he locked himself in his hotel room for five days and, re- and did a page one rewrite of the script. 
Ed Feldman, when he came out, he showed the script to everybody. Ed Feldman said, why did you take this movie? You took this movie under false pretenses. I called Bruce Paltrow in Los Angeles, Gwyneth Paltrow's dad, who was one of my closest friends at the time. And I said, I need to replace this director. And, and Bruce, <laughs> Bruce was doing shirts and skins. He said, well, I have this black director. And that's the only one available. And I said, I can never get, I can, I'll, and this is true, I, 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 I could never sell a black director in Squaw Valley, I'm telling you. And, yeah. I, and because of the, it stands, what I just said stands for itself. So we had, we had this, this loggerhead at the beginning. And when we saw the, saw the movie, we were shocked. Yeah, it was three hours long. Every single piece of footage that was ski footage was gray, out of focus, cold. Everything that I had, all my outs, what, what you call outs, were not were in the movie. All the good stuff was out of the movie, and and the the I was accused by the director of shooting a Warren Miller. You just shot Warren Miller sequences, he said. I said, yeah, but they'll stitch together nice, and people will like them. You want to, we have an audience. We're, we're doing a theatrical movie. And, there, I mean, there are a couple of Warren Miller uh, shots in there with Robbie leading a bunch of skiers. Lynn was in that shot up on Arrowhead. And then what happened is, and, and the party sequence, which should have only been eight or ten minutes at the most, yeah, it was 45 minutes long. It was interminable. Uh, unbelievable. That's a lot of Duran Duran yeah, yeah, going over and, and over again. And, and, and this is, I've never told anybody what I've told you guys today. Ed walked out of the out of the screening room, and I think he had a heart attack. He, he, walked, he walked to his car, and he was holding his chest, and he said, I think I'm having a heart attack. I went, Ed, no, you're just, it's, it's not, because he had, mortgaged his house in Beverly Hills to produce the movie. He had mortgaged his wow. house. <laughs> and, and he was, he, all he could think of was that he was going to lose his home. Well, and he said, what, ask me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, we don't have any choice. We'll fight. We got to fire the director. And we fired the director that day. And I said, I promise you, Ed, I will have it cut. I knew all the footage that I had shot wasn't in the director's cut. So I, I put, I spent the next six or 10 weeks editing everything that you saw. Anything white in the movie I edited personally (laughs) with my own hands. And then even then the guy who was the editor was, was a brilliant editor. His name was Steve Rich, Steve Riskin. It was his very first theatrical movie. He went on to do Avatar. He went on to do Pirates of the Caribbean. He became one of the top editors in Hollywood, but his start was on Hollywood on hot dog. And he didn't like my Chinese downhill. Huh. He actually turned to me and says, why don't you just put flash frames in that go biff pow, like a, a, a take off on Batman. And I went, no, this is going to work. Audiences will like this, Steve. And so he took a shot at it, spent three or four days recutting. And Ed said, what happened to our Chinese downhill? And so we went back and recut it. I put it back the way it was. And the Chinese downhill, the way it turned out, is the way I cut it. The party sequence was trimmed down to whatever it is now. I forget what it is now. It's a few minutes. It's all a party theme really needs to be. 
and we brought the movie in at an hour and a half, which this kind of movie should be. Yeah, and it wound up uh, making, according to Box Office Mojo, twenty point three million at the box office. The forty fourth yeah, more than that. It, yeah, it did more more than that in reality. But oh. yeah, that's what they publicized. Right, and and that's not your only dabble in skiing. I mean, if you have to name the three best skiing sequences in film history, it's yes. it's the Chinese downhill. It's, yes, it's definitely. The, it's the K2 in Better Off Dead, and it's a spy who loved me. I, I oh, my favorite. You shot I all shot, three. I shot K2. And what was the third one you said? Spy who loved me. Yeah, I designed that ski jump. We shot it off of El Capitan in, on January 29, 1972. One of my favorites. One of my favorites. Yep. Just yep. amazing. Hey, Lynn, was the cast and crew as wild and freewheeling as their characters? Well, it's funny because in there's the two major groups in the movie, the Rat Pack and Rudy and the Rudettes, right? And I, I tell people I was a minor character in a major group of people. I ski in the opening sequences and no, really no other time in the movie because in the movie there were only men who were competitors. There were no, there was no female side of the competitive skiing for the movie Hot Dog and the competition. So I was a minor character in a major group of people. I was young. And like, so I did my own skiing. George Theobald did his own skiing. He was flasher. And I think all the others in the Rat Pack had a, had a stunt skier. And so I kind of hung with the, the, the Bob Lagasses, Dan Herbie, Mark Vance. We were all locals that lived at Squaw, and we were just skiers that happened to be a part of this Hollywood production. And so like when they were doing the wet t-shirt contest, it was a powder day and we were all out skiing because we didn't have to be a part of that, which was awesome. The party scenes were kind of crazy. We shot overnight, I remember, over in East Lake and over an incline village in this beautiful home right on the lake. And Mike, you, you mentioned Max Clevin and I haven't heard that name in 40 years. And I remember it was his, I think it was his wife or his girlfriend, and she was the makeup artist. And she kind of took me under her wing. And so I hate to burst anybody's bubble thinking I was this wild party chick, but like I was kind of sleeping and she would come and get me and be like, okay, it's going to be time for you pretty soon. (laughs) So like I wasn't up partying all night. I mean, the the closing party, the end of this shooting party, that was a fun night. Um, But again, I was young enough and not part of a Hollywood scene. But yes, from what I saw in the morning, who's showing up on time for hair and makeup and wardrobe and getting out on the hill and who are we waiting for this time? They were partying a lot. lot. (laughs) (laughs) It was the era of... It was. And and that's, that's a fun thing to see and a fun thing to have been a part of. Yeah, wouldn't change it for anything. Well, here we are creeping up on the on 2024, which is going to be the 40th, unbelievable, the 40th anniversary wow. of Hot Dog yes. the Movie. Is there any reunion planned, and how can we all attend? That's a good question. I don't know. They usually have some sort of reunion in Squaw Valley. Uh, yeah, we did 30th. We did a 30th in Squaw Valley, and we did it at the Olympic Village Inn where everything was kind of based during the movie. And there must have been close to a thousand people that came to that. 
That's all. Yeah, we showed the movie. That was, that was, a, that was a interesting experience because I came there for that, and I honestly, and this is true, and this is this this is almost amusing. I didn't think anybody would come to the screening or the party that night. I it went up to get. Yeah, I, I went to get a friend of mine two seats who was actually a VIP, a really well-known guy. And they told me at the door, there's no more seats. I went, what? He said, yeah, we're completely yeah. sold out. All 1,200 seats are sold. I said, there's still another four or five or 800 people outside there. And so, well, they're not going to get in. And when they screened the movie, Lynn, if you remember, it was snowing that night. And outside of the windows were another four or 500 people watching the movie outside through windows, sitting on snowbanks. It was unbelievable. It was, it, that was one of the most unbelievable parts of the entire thing. And then the storyboards that I did, I did, I did copies of them. I still have them in my home. But they auctioned those storyboards off of which were about a dozen quality storyboards that look really cool and they auctioned them off. I think they, Chris Ernst told me they either made $30,000 or they made 7,000. They, they made a lot of money off the, for charity off those storyboards. Yep. Night. They did. It was a whole entire, it was, it was an incredible, she's right. It was an incredible experience that night. Oh, that, it, that is so fantastic drove from the Bay Area, from Sacramento. I mean, I had a girl say, I drove all the way up here just to meet you. I'm like, well, here I am. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Love it. See, see that small part left a lasting impact, Lynn. Now, Mike, you're on the line with us from New York. Can you tell us what yeah. you're doing there? Uh, yeah. Tomorrow night, I'm singing in Tarrytown, New York. I'm I'm a member of the Kingston Trio, which is one of the seminal folk singing bands in America. I've been in this group. Well, it's been part of my family since since the 1950s. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm singing here. We're singing in Beacon Hill. We're in Woodstock. And then the, our last night, we're in Boston at the Boston Winery. So yeah, I'm in the Kingston Trio. I'm still in the movie business. I'm writing a eight-part Netflix series. And I'm, I keep busy all the time. I keep really busy all the time in the movie biz. I, I keep getting asked to go back into the movie business as a mostly as a writer. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'm singing in the Kingston Trio. Fantastic. I've had the pleasure of hearing you, Mike. The Kingston Trio today is as <laughs> riveting as they were back when. Um, Did you like that show that night? Oh, it was fantastic when you were in, in Natick. It was absolutely yeah. fantastic. And Lynn, what are you, what are you doing now? And I got to put a plug in for your daughter who won a pretty big award in the state of Idaho. Oh, so yeah, I live in Boise. I've been living here about 27 years, raised my kids here. My daughter, Kate, her senior year of high school came to me her junior year and said, I want to be in this Miss Teen Idaho beauty pageant. I was like, beauty pageant, what? And so she did, and she won. So she was Miss Idaho Teen, and she got to stand on the Miss Teen USA stage in Vegas that summer and say, Kate Pichiri, Idaho. So that was fun for her. 
she and she's 25 now, living in Southern California with an awesome career with Red Bull, and I'm very proud of her. And then I have a, a son who's 27, and Brant was born with a genetic learning disability called Fragile X Syndrome. And so raising a special needs son, he also survived the leukemia diagnosis. It's been a tough road, but we've been pretty solid right here in Boise. I did go back to college. I tell people I took a 30-year break between my freshman and sophomore year, a 30-year gap year. And I graduated from Boise State with my communication degree back in 2016. I worked up at Bogus for a couple of years in the marketing department, and now I'm working as a buyer at a small family-owned 50 years. They've been in business ski shop here in Boise, and I've never loved it. Fantastic. I get to run people like Mike at buying shows and make new friends and see old friends, and people are happy to walk in in the store, and so we get to talk about skiing. That's great. Well, I, I, I have to say, it sounds cliche to say I could talk to you two for hours about these subjects, but I could. Even from Mike, just from the, the fact of talking writing in Hollywood with the strike going on, that, that fascinates me. I'd yeah. love to discuss that. Everything sure. to do with hot dog. It's, this has been a, a fantastic. I'm glad that both of you were able to come on and, and talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. Now, this was very special, and I know the audience is you know, totally going to love this. Good deal. Thank you, sir. Thank well, you very much. We want to we want to say thank you for joining us today. You guys great movie, great you guys are great human beings, which is above and beyond, and I look forward to seeing you both again soon. All righty. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Talk to you, Mike. All right. Thanks take for care. Thank on. you. I wasn't lying when I said I could have talked to them for hours because even when Mike brought up the fact that he's he's writing a a, a movie or a a, a series even even with the part that mike brought up that he's writing a a series for for netflix i could have started to talk to him about the the writer strike in hollywood i could have done that for half an hour there were just in in the time that we had so much to talk about and just a fascinating discussion with with two of the main components in one of my favorite movies of all time yeah i mean hot dog just unbelievable the benchmark it sent set I had dinner with Mike Marvin probably two months ago now, maybe three, because we went to see the Kingston Trio and we had dinner before the show. He's fascinating. I mean, lives in L.A., has a ranch up in Oregon, really just a vibrant person that that just loves life and loves what he does and talking about hot dog. Yeah, and and I I think he appreciated the fact that we came to it from a, a skier's passion perspective, right? Like we're not. Yes, we talked about the party scene, and yes, we talked about all the craziness. But at its heart, the reason why hot dog has lasted this long in in general populations culture is because of the skiing, because of the way that he said, or someone criticized him for making quote unquote another Warren Miller movie. And he's like, well, yeah, but that's going to, I think he understood that that's what's going to make it last. There are other ski movies out there where the skiing is not quite on par with Hot Dog, and you can tell. And that's a big reason why Hot Dog lives today. Oh, it sure is. And Lynn, Lynn is just a fantastic person and an incredible skier. It's great to have, to know that Killington, Vermont was so well represented in this movie and I so appreciate that she came on, but you know, what's next. This is, that's just the start folks. Mm -hmm. 
we got we have something truly special on the next episode that brings New England back into the mix but also sets a standard in ski movies like Hot Dog did. We've got a blizzard in plans for the next podcast. We're going to have uh, filmmaker Greg Stump and Mike Catchup, part of the crew in Blizzard of Oz, which is one of the, uh, probably the most notable skiing film of our generation. It sure is. And it, Blizzard of Oz. Oz, right. No, you got to love it. One of my favorite. Looking forward to talking to those two. Okay. We will have that next time on the Basecamp podcast for now. That's Mike. Thanks, Mike. Eric, this three-piece series that we're doing is fascinating in every way. That was great. Can't wait for the next one. Absolutely. That will be here whenever you get your podcast or wherever you get your podcast. We will be here. Um, that's it for this Space Camp podcast. I'm Eric Wilber. We'll see you later. New England Ski Journal's Base Camp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.